I can speak today about a, our, our first national account that we just recently secured, big major commercial account. Um, they are in, investing in and want uh, green technology, durable, sustainable infrastructure solutions after understanding the value proposition that is the Averimod product uh, and that infrastructure solution that we've created, they have adopted that as their preferred and their specified solution. So that product line, just that one customer right there, I think will contribute at least another two and a half million dollars in top line revenue just to the pump station product line by the end of this year. It'll probably go to five million next year, just with that one customer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CEO briefing on the 15th of September. We got two more weeks in the quarter. Uh, I can tell you that I like the numbers as they're developing. We're not, we now have real-time revenue recognition um, back completions now as we go. And so I'm able to know, uh, thanks to the hard work of Prasad and David and Eric um, in finance, as to how far along we are, and it's really wonderful. So we'll, I like I like where we're going. So without further ado, here's our safe harbor statement. Here's our disclaimer. Uh, Robert Baxter tells me he's back. Thank you very much, Robert. All right, so I'm gonna uh, start with a very interesting recent podcast, which gets into some of the issues we've been talking about, and then we're gonna get into the issues. But if I'm talking about pump stations, which was that clip we opened with, this is what those concrete pump stations look like. And this is what our cool high-density polyethylene or polypropylene uh, enclosures look like. And they have that up to 100-year life, and I'll be discussing that further. All right, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today, I'm here with Riggs, Eckleberry Riggs. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure, Brian. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Riggs, we are recording this in early September 2022. And there is a town south of Nashville, where I am, called Jackson, Mississippi, which currently has no access to water, and it's been about a week now. And so this is a very timely conversation about the state of water infrastructure in America, and obviously it's becoming almost a geopolitical strategic issue in terms of access to water. So could you maybe give us just a high-level snapshot of what the water industrial complex in America looks like today and how it's developed to what it is? Well, yes, I have good friends in Jackson, a beautiful town, great people, and it's a sad situation that is occurring. Now, this, there's many indications. We heard about Flint, Michigan. There's uh, Fort Lauderdale had, you know, sewers breaking. Um, Las Vegas, New Mexico is drinking out of bottled water right now as I speak. So it's happening all over the place, unfortunately. What we have is we have a breakdown in central infrastructure for, our, for 150,000 plus water systems in America. And um, for some reason, the, um, the funding isn't there. We had a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill and it only allocated $55 billion to water for the entire nation. And uh, research has shown that we're falling behind by $75 billion each year. So. Our infrastructure is falling apart, and it doesn't seem it's going to get a handle soon. And so our mission became, what, do, what can we do about it? So what is, what is the issue in terms of it falling apart? Is it a case of you know, government just doing the job poorly? I'm trying to understand, are they, are they 
public-private partnerships in terms of the industrial complex that manages the water infrastructure in America today? Is it state-by-state -state differentiation, depending on what jurisdiction you're in? It is a patchwork situation with um, sometimes very small municipalities. Look at what happened in Compton, California. Um, they one day woke up to brown water coming out of their faucets. And um, they said, what's going on? And, this, and the local water treatment company said, that was, that was owned and operated by the city, said, oh, um, it's just magnesium. It won't hurt you. But they're like, well, we don't like brown water. Uh, and they said, well, if you'd, we've been asking for 10 years for funding to fix it, and it hasn't been fixed. Well, that um, got taken over by the LA, uh, Metro LA system, and the problem got taken care of. But it's a symptom of what goes on here, which is that these are often very small um, operations, and um, they, they are doing local funding. Federal funding dried up. It was quite high in the, in the 70s, and it, it just dwindled, and it went from grants to loans. And um, I think it's just out of sight, out of mind. We take water for granted. We shouldn't. Um, for some reason, um, I can't say our roads are great either, but at least we're aware that roads and bridges need to be taken care of. And so I just think that we have a broken process for centralized infrastructure. I'll give you an example. Let's look at, look at the bulletproof train in California. What bulletproof train? It's not happening. What's going to happen instead is we'll have the Google self-driving car. Why? Because there's freeways already. So we have a problem with infrastructure at every level. We're just not building those big projects anymore. And even if we wanted to, I, I'm in a region, Pinellas County, Florida, which is quite urbanized. Where would they put them, right? And so um, the, the the problem is, uh, where do you put the sewage systems? There's a NIMBY problem, not in my backyard. The funding's not there. So we saw a trend emerge um, that was documented in wonderful research by a group named Lux Research that in 2016 really convinced me this was the way to go, which is decentralization. Take the load off the center and make the, the polluters, the users, do their treatment at the edge. Now, this has a double barrel benefit. Number one, the users at the edge now, businesses, get better control over their water treatment. They can recycle, which means they get, you know, America doesn't recycle its water at all. That's a separate issue. And secondly, it enables the municipality to not have to deal with all that industrial and agricultural water, which is 80, 85% plus of all water use. And now they can focus on humans who are being overcharged right now. I don't know if you've been hearing about the social justice issues around water rates. People are spending 12, 14% of their take-home pay on water. Come on, this is ridiculous. Um, Ireland makes water free and it should be free, but we can't do it if the cities are trying to treat all this industrial toxic waste, all this agricultural waste. Let's offload that and let the cities do their job for the people. Right. And that's the trend that I wanted to hear your commentary on is 50s, 60s, 70s became part of this kind of public infrastructure project in America. It's clearly broken, right? We're seeing what's playing out in real time in the Southwest where Lake Mead is empty, partially due to what's happening with the climate, but also just poor management and poor policy across the board. You feel like privatization and the, the three hallmarks that you kind of called out there, direct, local, decentralized, that's 
the solution to this problem, in your opinion? Well, I don't believe that we should privatize the central systems. This has been a disaster in England in 1998. They sold all of the reservoirs to private organizations, and now they are in a terrible drought. There's no reservoir capacity. And so, and this happened in Flint too, where uh, a local operator didn't do the right stuff. So I believe that central water systems should remain in the public hand. Um, if, if a city wants to delegate the operating of a system to Veolia, that's fine. That's great. But they should retain control. What we're talking about is businesses doing their own water treatment, taking responsibility. So all they're sending to the city is treated water, right? Now that doesn't create a problem for the city at all. That's actually a benefit. It's kind of like mainframes and PCs. I'm old enough to remember having had to schedule time on a mainframe because why? We were serving the mainframe. PCs flip it around. PC serves me. Sure, 90% of the time it's not working. Uh, it's just sitting there idle, but it's ready for me on, a, on, you know, on the spot. So that's the benefit of, decentral, of, of taking things to the margin is lots of availability, uh, lots of service. Businesses like, I mean, we deal with them constantly. Our, our business is increasingly, we, we almost tripled our, our revenues year to year, uh, as we recently announced. We, and with most of these are decentralized, uh, you know, treat your own water companies, and they like it because they get control. And also they save money on water rates. There's all kinds of reasons why it's good. And it's beneficial for the public policy. So I believe it's an unstoppable trend. It's uh, the water industry likes it. The, 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 the cities are like, great. <laughs> I don't have to treat your water. That's great. So everybody's in favor of it. We found that there was one barrier. And this is a barrier we actually found. Uh, we were, you know, COVID caused us all to like look at our business model. And we're there sitting there in March 2020 going, oh Lord, what's going on? And we realized that the, this, we had, I don't know, $45 million worth of deals sitting there waiting to, to happen on various stages. And we finally realized it's the money, stupid. If we make turn it from a capital expense to an operating expense, just make it water as a service, then people sign a service contract and they get their water treatment and businesses are accustomed to paying on the meter anyway. And that became a program that is really a flagship program for us, which is called Water on Demand. And it's combined with decentralization, but it accelerates it. So you, you mentioned the, the utility costs, obviously, Inflation is playing a part into this. I know that there is research out there or notes saying that a large swath of America Americans are now 90 days late paying their utility bills in some jurisdictions. This issue is not going to go away. You mentioned some names. How, what is the scale of the private, for lack of a better term, I'm not sure, but water market today? And, and what is that? what do those corporations look like? What are the services they're providing and how are they creating innovation within what has been typically a, a reserve of the public institutional world? Well, yes, there's some very big players. Um, you know, the largest American one is American Waterworks, very good company. To give you an idea of the scale, their mergers and acquisitions budget alone yearly is a billion dollars just to buy companies, right? Very large. Now, what are they doing? They are uh, they are tapping the municipal bond market, which is how these central systems are generally funded. And they're servicing the cities and they're doing a fine job. Um, they are not really focusing on decentralization. That, that, that is something that is, um, you know, 
I don't know if you uh, ever heard of Clayton Christensen, a great thinker, uh, the, the Innovator's Dilemma, wonderful book he read, wrote, um, which says that the, the seed of, of the new things, they're always suppressed by the existing players because the revenue model is different, right? Um, when we go decentralized, we go smaller. And for Veolia, a $500,000 water system is like too small, right? They're do, they want to do 10, 20, $30 million systems. And there's a place for that. So we have two scale issues. We have um, the, the quote unquote mainframes and they're going to continue. But at the same time, we have the quote unquote PCs and those are a growing market. I, and, and numerically it's much, much larger because of the number of businesses in America. And um, it's an unstoppable trend. There's a great uh, case study by a, um, another company in our space called Cambrian Innovation, great company. And they um, were approached by Russian River Brewery in Sonoma County. And Russian River Brewery was, being, was encountering major rate hikes by Sonoma, also very, you know, lots of regulatory demands and so forth. And they said, we got to take, we got to like, business people think of risk reduction. They don't want to be in the water business. They just want the problem to be contained. Like water is fine. So Cambrian helped them out with one of these water as a service deals. And um, Russian River signed a, a contract and started paying, you know, on performance on, you know, on the, what's called throughput contracts, they're called. And it worked out great because they were able to get um, the contract had built in, you know, it's long-term, 10, 15 years. It's got an in, index inflation and so forth, but at least you're, you know what it's going to be. And you know how, we don't know what's going on with inflation right now. It's impossible to tell. And here's the weird thing, Brian, water rates, are skyrocketing even before 2020, they were running 65% higher than regular inflation already. What is up? What is up with that? Why are we skyrocketing water rates? And so businesses are like, whoa, whoa, this has got to stop. And they put it in a box and they go, okay, I've got a contract. It's a decade-long contract. I can worry about something else. And that I think is very rational. And it's going to it's going to increase the quality of water in America because cities will not be having to deal with the most toxic water, which is industrial. So there are some big players in the space. You refer to them as big water. They're, they're changing things, but they're, they're attacking the, the biggest whales first, which, which makes sense. But as a private concern, as a private investor, I mean, is there a way to take control of this issue yourselves? If you are, you know, a, a landlord, an owner, um, a private citizen, I mean, what options are there in the marketplace for you today? Okay, well, there's two sides of it. One is how do I treat my water, and how do I deal with that? Now, um, there's generally, generally, the water. Um, utilities have not abandoned the general user. You can still flush your toilet. It goes fine. So that's not the issue. Uh, what's happening more and more is that, for example, housing communities, housing developments are being located off-grid and they're setting up their own independent system. Why? Because it's economically much better. They get cheaper land and they don't have to um, deal with the capital expense of running sewage to the city, et cetera. So there's a lot going on in that area, but really the other side is investment. Right now, I don't know about you, but I have no idea where to put my money. I'm looking at the stock market. I'm like, it's up, it's down, it's sideways, whatever, right? Um, 
And, uh, you know, even gold, uh, Bitcoin, nothing's working. Energy is in trouble. Even though uh, the energy companies are making money hand over fist, the stocks aren't doing great. Here's why. All of these commodities and, um, and, and risk assets and so forth are, have been running for a long time. They're maxed out. And what we're saying is, okay, we've created a way for the ordinary investor to invest directly in water projects, these new decentralized ones, and it turns water into an asset. Uh, obviously, I'm pitching here, but it turns water into an asset that generates royalties for you, the investor, and you get shares in this, this water on demand. So it's, it's, a, it's a new investing avenue. And we find that people are like, oh, wow, I can invest in water. How cool is that? So people want to do something about it, and they can. They can invest in water on demand, and they will, I believe, get good return on their money, but they'll also be helping this big mega trend of self-sufficient water treatment by agriculture and industry. So is a fair corollary to this energy where, you know, for instance, the, um, America is one of the few places where you can actually own the mineral rights beneath the surface of the land. Private individuals can then contract with larger groups to make um, a, a yield on those working interests in terms of mineral rights. Is it a similar parallel here where you're taking the government out of the equation, you're privatizing this asset, this commodity, and you can, you know, make income off of it? Right. Now, we're, to be clear, we're not talking about water rights, which is a whole separate game. Right. Um, and there's actually good stuff happening there where farmers, um, there's, there's a new, um, uh, the, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange has got a, has got a, you, you can trade your water rights, you can reuse them. That's all good stuff. I have a good friend who, who um, has a company called Water Ledger that enables farmers to resell their unused water rights. All this stuff is good. What we're really talking about is once people have the water in their hands, what do they do with it? Well, they should do two things. They should treat it and they should recycle it. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, that the U.S. is very bad with recycling. Um, contrast that with Israel, which recycles almost 90% of their water. The number two in the world is Spain with 20%. U.S. is at 1%. Why? Because we built our um, water infrastructure very similar to the energy grid, which is one direction outward. Our energy grid does not have a two-way conversation, and neither does our water grid. And it's not going to change. We're not going to start you know, sending stuff back uphill. The solution then is to get more turns out of the water right where you're using it. And I believe that's an important part of the water scarcity conversation. So let business users do their own thing. It's beneficial to them. It's beneficial to the overall environment. It will results in better utilization, better social justice. The municipalities can concentrate on the more needy users because they're not trying to serve corporations. It's all around a, a really, really good remedy. Yeah, it's interesting what you're talking about in terms of similar to the electric grid where some jurisdictions, if there's excess generation, it can be sold on the secondary market to other jurisdictions or utilities that need that. That doesn't exist in the in the water infrastructure space today in America? It's starting to happen, as I said. Okay. My friend Rave Mehta, Water Ledger, he's got that going. Uh, there's that, um, this, um, uh, the Veles, V-E-L-E-S um, market index is, is another way of they're trading it. It's, it's really in its infancy. Um, and that's a separate trend from what I believe is um, 
what's a bigger trend in energy is, is people generating their own energy where they are and you know, feeding energy back into the grid. Well, that's very similar to what's happening with decentralized water. It's a very similar thing. So big trend towards auto, auto um, treatment. And by the way, it's people more and more are interested. We've, we've discovered a trend, which is evident, which is people are interested in continuity. Where's my power going to be? Food, water. Uh, people have become a little bit paranoid about what's going on. Um, and they've, you know, there's been this big move away from the mega cities to the secondary cities, which, by the way, is, I think, healthy. We need to have better distribution of populations, more manageable. But it does overstress, for example, Florida is the beneficiary of a lot of immigration, but it also is, again, overstressing the systems. So as they move, they're interested in their own um, continuity of essential services, rightly so. So doing their own water is great. Now, there's another thing that's going on, which is people are increasingly aware of what's called forever chemicals. And uh, later today, I'm going to be interviewed on, um, on, a, on a network about this. It's becoming a big topic. People are realizing these forever chemicals, basically the stuff that's in te- that was in Teflon, it's been largely obsoleted, but the stuff ended up going into the groundwater and now it, it doesn't get out of the system. It's kind of stuck in there. And so people need to filter their water. Um, and most people, uh, again, you have a rich man, poor man problem because I've got water filtration in my home, but other people have to live off tap water and it is what it is. So um, I think that there's going to be a need to do something about the incoming water. We do not operate at the single family home level. We're just not in that mass market. But for example, we have um, a premium hotel chain that um, commissioned us to do whole hotel water, incoming water treatment, because they wanted to get ahead of the problem. They wanted to tell their clients, their their guests, the broccoli (laughs) was made with chemical-free water and your shower does not have forever chemicals. And so that's going to become a major trend where um, housing developments, hotels, RV campgrounds, you name it, travel stops, all that stuff uh, are going to want, you know, have incoming water handled. And also they're going to want to be off the grid for treating that water. And then thirdly, they're going to want to recycle the water for irrigation and so forth. That is a big coming thing. And I think it's super exciting. I love the idea that people can take control of their water finally. Well, Riggs, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's really fun and a super interesting um, industry and asset class that I don't know anything about. So um, it spurred me to, to learn more. Thanks again. I look forward to staying in touch. Happily, you know, let's uh, have, a, have, a, have a comeback um, in six, eight months when we have got more to report. And Brian, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. That was super cool. What's happening to the water? That was the story that I had discussed earlier. Take a moment. And look at this. That's supposed to be water, but it looks more like coffee or even mud. And this isn't new. This has been going on in central Mississippi for what, two months now? Mm-hmm. Now, this video was shared on Twitter thousands of times. It shows just how bad, how horrible the ongoing water crisis is in Mississippi's capital. And as I said, this isn't new. This has been going on for several weeks. Now, we also know that today that the EPA's Office of Inspector General says that it will investigate the city's water. This is a crisis. It really is a crisis. This includes looking at administration of clean water and drinking water that's basically revolving around funds. 
We actually sent Fox 13's Mississippi reporter Tom Dees to Jackson today as he found that the city has restored water pressure, but the water is still contaminated. I spoke to a woman by the name of Patricia Anderson here in Jackson, Mississippi. She tells me she boils the tap water and puts bleach in it just to wash her dishes. Boil the water and put bleach in it. <laughs> Old time remedy, bleach will kill any germ. Yeah, you gotta bleach it. Anderson cooks for her family here. She says washing the dishes can be a hassle, but she's keeping them done as she can. She showed me what the water coming out of her faucet looks like. They gave her some water, you just have to drink it. you change it? Yeah. You can see the color changing. Mm -hmm. That's the cold water. Anderson tells me she goes to get water at places around the city, but she worries about people around town who can't get out and get it. She tells me she won't even give the water out of the tap to her dog. No, the dog drinks powder for water. And he does. And he would drink a bottle of water if he got some powder for water. No, that was going to drink In Jackson, Mississippi, Tom Dees, Fox 13 News. This is that story in the NPR that um, says, okay, it's going to take up to $2 billion to fix the water system. Uh, basically, they got a double whammy from a winter storm and uh, this overwhelmed the system. But as I said in the podcast, the money being allocated is far short of what it should be. Here it is right here. City received $8 million, but the whole state of Mississippi is getting only $75 million for water and sewage. And, um, you know, we're talking $2 billion for Jackson's system alone. That's crazy, right? That's super crazy. All right. Just to say that it's not just Jackson or Flint. Nothing is better than New York City water. Mayor, where are you at? Here at Reese uh, Houses. And, you know, really wanted to show with our uh, Department of uh, Health and Mental Hygiene Commissioner Dr. Fasan and the rest of the team um, as we tell the Reese Houses residents that it's okay to drink the water uh, and I want to thank all the city agencies that came together to supply temporary water during the meantime and uh, we're just you know here to make sure that people know I'm drinking it <laughs> you know the water is safe to drink. So before I move on here, I also promised to cover uh, what's happening with the pump station business. Uh, so that's going to be ongoing. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that the mayor does is necessary to reassure people because there is a crisis of confidence. And that is the real problem that we're seeing. The problem here is obviously continuing. And what to do about it, I, I covered in that podcast. It's very simple. We have got to unburden the central system because the central systems are not getting fixed. Who is going to allocate $2 billion to Jackson, Mississippi? I told you that I reached out to 
a state level legislator. And even he went, you know what? I got nothing to do with the city. It's like the city's got to handle everything, but the city doesn't have the resources. Now, should we help the city? Well, I would love to, but it needs serious cash. I don't have $2 billion, not right now. So what do we do instead? Let's go ahead and implement water on demand, which is an easy way for industry to do its own treatment. It's beneficial. They, get, they win doing it. They get to recycle all these good things. And that's 89% of the load taken off of the cities. And now the remaining 11% can really be taken care of. And the water rates can go down. Ireland does it for free. Maybe we can do it for free in America if we're not servicing all of the industry and agriculture users, which are most of the usage. So that's kind of my sermon for the day. Let's go ahead and listen to Dan Early and see what's going on with the pump stations. Mr. Dan Early, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Riggs. Good afternoon. Good to see you. Likewise, you're looking uh, very sunny there in, in Virginia. It is an absolute wonderful late summer afternoon here. Um, it's about, um, about 75 degrees, not a cloud in the sky, just beautiful weather. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I can see why you wouldn't want to leave that place. It's a, it's a well-kept secret. Don't spread the word. I don't, <laughs> it's a beautiful place to live. Weather is beautiful. Climate's great. Scenery is gorgeous. It is very spectacular. That's so true. Well, Dan, uh, first of all, congratulations on some of the recent uh, months of production. It's been amazing. Um, you know, you're part of the, the success story where, you know, we announced our Q2 year-over-year year uh, gross um, revenue was 240% up. And gross profits were 288 percent up year over year, and uh, you're a huge piece of that. So I greatly appreciate it. On top of it, you had the month of May was equal to the more than the entirety of 2021. So that was another announcement we made. So um, what what is interesting about this is that looking at the business you're doing, a lot of it is in uh, pump stations or lift stations, right? Um, and again, I, I know they're semi, somewhat interchangeable. Some people like to say pump stations for portable water, lift stations for sewage water, but that's, that's kind of a um, convention. Um, I'm sure that it's used interchangeably. Pump stations, lift stations, what do they do and how are they important in uh, a sewage network? Okay, uh, I'll, be, I'll be glad to answer that, Riggs. Um... So in, um, in layman's terms, a, a sewage or wastewater lift station or pump station is designed to collect wastewater at a central location. Uh, it can be from houses, from offices. It can be in a neighborhood. And we connect, it collects it at a, at a low point, and it typically will pump it or lift the wastewater to a much higher location so it can then be uh, discharged further downstream to uh, another collection system or to a wastewater treatment facility. So that's generally what it is. It's to, it's to pump from a low spot to a high spot. And now there is obviously they're also used in the uh, the potable water distribution network, right? They are now in the potable in the potable water side. They are more commonly referred to as booster stations. Okay. Uh, typically, we're transferring water, boosting pressure, transferring water from from one pressure zone to another, pumping up from a treatment plant to a a finished water atmospheric storage tank where you'll then do pressurized distribution to the neighborhood for drinking drinking water purposes. Reminds me of my time in New York City where there's a forest of water tanks above all the 
the buildings, right? To create that's the- exactly. Yep. If you look at the old black and white photos and movies from back in the 30s and 40s, you see those water, those uh, wooden water tanks on top of the buildings. Those were the drinking water supplies for all of those um, those taller buildings and high rises. Sure, sure. Okay, so um, so what you're really saying is that when we say pump stations in your business, you're talking about transporting sewage, wastewater. Correct. That is what we do. Yep. All right. And um, let's take a look quickly at the last couple of months, uh, August to September, um, without getting into what's been closed or whatever or who the client is, but just to take a look here. Um, we have the application, um, and over on the right-hand side, we have which of these are pump stations. Um, and we can see right away that, uh, for example, in August, uh, you know, $1.4 million out of $2 million, that's bid. We're not saying they get, they get closed or whatever. We're not going to get into that in this call. Uh, and in September, almost $2 million, I guess, almost $4 million. Um, so it really dominates in August. It's a little bit less dominant in September, but you're running about 60, 70% pump stations right now. Uh, we are. And that is uh, the ratio and the breakdown that you see here in the, in the charts that are on the screen. Uh, that is a function of the, the targeted and focused and uh, focused marketing effort we've had to promote the Everamod pump station product into the wastewater infrastructure marketplace. Um, we're working directly with um, our independent sales reps, working with um, strategic partners in the form of consulting engineering firms. Uh, so all of this, uh, th- this, this backlog of work that you see and the successes that we've had in contract closings, those are all a function of our targeted focus to this, uh, to this particular industry. Okay. And uh, what, how are you marketing? Well, first of all, What's your unique selling proposition, and then how are you marketing it? So the the selling proposition that is unique to the Avermod system is a, a couple of things. Um, as you as you recall from previous um, meetings and previous uh, briefings, the Avermod system uh, is a um, a value add of and it, ha- it is a uh, is an infrastructure solution specifically geared towards the wastewater infrastructure conveyance world. And the, the value is derived from the fact that we use heavy plastic manufacturing. We have these corrosion-resistant uh, wastewater uh, wet wells and valve vaults uh, that overcome the limitations of epoxy-coated steel and reinforced concrete that are highly susceptible to corrosion in these very harsh wastewater environments. So that's value proposition number one. Value proposition number two is, is that we have developed an engineered and standardized product. The Avermod system, uh, if you go to our website or if you've attended any of the webinars and any of the uh, educational series, um, uh, presentations that we give, you'll understand that the Averamod is not a is no longer a custom engineered solution. Uh, we have very much standardized the approach to how you evaluate um, and conceptually design and finalize the, the the final configuration for the Averamod system. So that's the second that's the second value proposition. The third value proposition is the the ability to do a turnkey single point of delivery. For all of that, it's the structures, it's the pumps, it's the control system, it's the ancillary equipment. It is all of those things. So we've taken a very clunky, very segregated, uh, a divorced delivery model that's been the norm over the last 50 years. And we've consolidated and streamlined it and both in the engineering and in the manufacturing perspectives. And that's where the that's where the true value is. 
lower initial first cost. Mm-hmm. It has 4x times the uh, the longest life cycle cost uh, as far as its um, its ability to be durable and sustainable. Okay, so cost, life cycle, the standardization um, that you've got in the um, the design, so that, and then the, finally the um, fully integrated or, or turnkey solution. Correct. Correct. Um, what is the state of pump stations in America in general that you're running into? The, the condition of these pump stations. They the the wastewater lift station, the wastewater pump station marketplace for existing facilities, existing utilities that own and operate these types of infrastructure solutions. They are uh, these pump stations are everywhere. They are they number in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, on a quantity basis. A lot of these systems are now 30, 40, 50, even 60 years old. Most of them are at the end or have significantly exceeded their expected service life. And now they are they represent contingent their current and future contingent liabilities on the part of the utility owner and operator. And so that that uh, because of the corrosion issues and because of the very harsh operational environments and the materials of construction that were used 30, 40, 50 years ago and even still being used commonly today, all of those things combine to create a, uh, a very dire, in my opinion, from my professional opinion, they've got a very dire future for wastewater utility systems, especially when it comes to um, pumped conveyance. So that's that that's the it's it's in we are in a bad spot here in North America. As great as the country is, um, our rankings for civil uh, infrastructure is pretty low. And it's a function of this, uh, the nature of these utility systems. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, just to say, like in the UK, for example, they are replacing pipe at the rate of 0.5 percent per year. Yeah. <laughs> It's like two thousand years they'll they'll make their way around. This is completely out of whack because you know they're suffering. In the case of that pipe, of course, they're suffering a lot of uh, net revenue losses um, because of the leakage. But in the case of the the, the wastewater, if that's going into the uh, aquifer, then it creates a potential t- uh, liability for the for the operator, right? Correct. That the the environmental the contingent liability the the current and future contingent liability that I mentioned, it is it purely is a function of the potential for environmental damage, environmental contamination, leaking collection systems, uh, leaking wet wells, uh, leaking force mains. All of this wastewater that is being collected is now leaking back into the groundwater, making its way into the water streams and the surface waters. Uh, nitrogen pollution, uh, fecal coliform pollution. All of those things are very, very detrimental to the environment. So it's a huge liability. Wow, that's amazing. And just to correct myself, I said 2,000 years for the UK. It's actually 200 years. I just think that math, I got to watch that math. But anyway, uh, I didn't check it on the calculator. I didn't check it on the calculator, so I took your word for it. Yeah, so half a percent. Wait a minute. That's 200, not 100, not 1,000. But nonetheless, um, just to make it clear for our audience. But uh, coming back to the issue here, so contingent liabilities is really something that ultimately can create a uh, litigation, right? Because that's yes. what the danger is. Yeah, uh, if you, um, a lot of public utilities mm-hmm. that 
own and operate collection systems and conveying systems and have uh, dilapidated equipment, equipment pump stations that should have been replaced 10 or 15 years ago uh, that are that are contributing uh, pollution or they're, they're, they're discharging pollution and untreated wastewater to the environment. When you have uh, local environmental groups that are aware of that and even the customer base themselves, when they are aware of this and they uh, seek legal action, take legal action against the utility provider, uh, it's a, just a colossal headache. It's just a, it's, it's bad. Nobody wins. Nobody wins. Well, okay. So the our regular product lines, modular water systems, even a lot of progressive water treatment is for the actual business, the decentralized user versus municipality. But in the case of the, the pumps and stations and lift stations, that is, you have a big mix of municipals, right? We do. We do. It's, um, I would say right now, it's, as far as the breakdown, um, it's at least, I would say it's probably 60, 40, maybe even 70, 30 in favor of municipalities. Uh, the municipal customer base the, and the specifying engineers that work with these municipal uh, public works departments and these, these public utility uh, entities, they are really rallied around the Veramod product line. Uh, the, uh, but the total value proposition, the engineering that was gone into it, the manufacturing model, the single point of delivery, and ultimately the sustainability of the system relative to the structures we use, the heavy plastic structures, all of those things uh, are check the boxes that these engineers are looking for, that the end users are looking for relative to uh, having a sustainable wastewater pumping pump station infrastructure solution. Just to give you an example, Riggs, a conventional concrete-based structure which has a, 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 pre, a precast concrete manhole. Um, it might have a 20, 25-year expected life cycle, structural life cycle, whereas the, the structural plastic, heavy plastic structural manhole we use with the Avermont system has a 100-year life cycle. So you have a 4x increase in continuous duty service life. That is a huge value to the end user. That means that they don't have to worry about re these uh, frequent replacements, the budgeting, the cost, the maintenance that goes with these things the interruption of service, all of those things, we're able to check all of those boxes and make sure that those things do not become contingent future concerns on the part of the end user. Yeah, I mean, um, another thing is that I believe you're able to do retrofits. Am I right? We can. Um, the Avermont system and the way the structural plastic cylinders and the structures are assembled, we can go into an existing wet well especially the much larger concrete wet wells. Um, and we can actually retrofit the Avermont station into that, into a wet well like that. Um, it does work better on the larger ones just because of economy of scale and just the, the amount of work that's involved in trying to uh, take a larger lift station out of service and then to upgrade it with an insert system that we would provide. Um, smaller systems, what we are seeing, I'll share this with you, Riggs. Uh, we do have quite a few uh, public sector jobs in the pipeline where our smaller, the baby brother versions of the Avera mod, we're actually doing full-on direct replacement. They may have a wastewater pump station, concrete station here. We will move over maybe 20 feet, and we will install a new pump station and do a change around, a yard piping change around, and, and bring the new station online. And it resumes, it assumes for service, and then they take the old equipment offline and, and take it out of, um, take, and decommission that. Yeah, I see how that, for at a certain point, it's just not worth Going, you know, rehabbing the pump station. I get that. Um, Correct. Now, also, uh, I was hearing that, um, first of all, I think we're price competitive, right? Even with the 
epoxy coated uh, steel and the concrete. That right there, I am really tickled with this. Uh, since the since COVID has impacted the globe, and we have seen inflation take off here in the last twelve months, uh, supply chains supply chain disruptions, all of those have actually worked to our advantage. And uh, and by that, what I mean is that because of our efficient manufacturing model, our single point of assembly and single point of delivery, both in contract and in delivery of the equipment, we are very, very efficient. And the resin, the plastic resins used uh, to create the structural wet wells and the valve vaults, while we have experienced uh, inflationary pressures and we have seen uh, resin prices go up and we've seen plastic material prices go up, it's been incremental to the overall cost of our pump station. Um, in the last six to 12 months, I have seen our station where we may have been neck and neck price-wise with a, a conventional concrete station. We're now a much better value because the inflationary pressures and the price es pricing escalation on transportation, on concrete, on all the various trades used to build a custom field-erected station, all of those things have skyrocketed the price of a conventional pump station delivery. Ours is much, much more constrained and much more controlled, and it, it's a huge, it's a huge first capital cost benefit to the end user. Wow! So less expensive, more, more readily available. There's no lag times. Um, better product, um, and so I mean, it, it begs the next question, which is how's how your 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 um you know how are your victories going how you know how you're getting conquests how are your conquests going uh i think you're getting some national accounts that kind of thing we did we we are seeing that we're seeing we're seeing uh very rapid adoption at the municipal level um and i'm very pleased to say that just with a handful of reps that we work with and them just working part-time with that particular product line uh the the pipeline of opportunities the the where we are basis of design for those systems, that continues to increase month over month. I'm very pleased with that. Um, I'm also very pleased with our ability now where we are landing, we are starting to land national accounts with uh, very large national companies, uh, mostly in, in retail, in the retail space or, or in the private sector, where they are adopting the Mod because it checks all of the right boxes, single point of delivery, fully integrated design, fully engineered solution, one check, they write one, they, they have one purchase order and they, they receive all of the equipment. So um, we have really solved a lot of problems for these um, for these entities that work on a national account basis where they, they may need to buy, buy three, four or five pump stations a month. Um, I expect that next year, uh, as we continue to add additional national accounts to go with the ones that we currently have now, uh, the Avermont product line, it'll easily be a, um, I, would, I would project that in 12 to 18 months, we could be bumping up against an eight-figure top-line revenue uh, for an annual revenue line. So I'm very pleased, very pleased with where oh, we're going with this. That's huge. It's getting that close. We're, we are uh, the forecasts are showing that. Again, no no guarantees, but uh, everything is all going in the right direction. Well, the foundation, the legwork, uh, the the education that we're doing, and the proof, the reality of the product now that we're getting product into the field. And people see this, and they, they, it's not a, it's not a, this ephemeral um, concept of an idea. It's it's real, and we're showing it to people now. So that's that's what's making it very exciting. 
Wow. Well, I think that covers um, the landscape. Um, we're going to, there's been some good stuff on the water on demand design. I'm not going to cover this interview. I think it's kind of piling on too much, but I, I know that you are working very hard to create water on demand um, specific products. This does not include the pump stations. The pump stations is a world of its own that's really not appropriate to the design, build, own, operate model, right? Um, it, it, the Avera mod, the Avera mod would be a single component to a water on demand delivery model. It, it could be a part. It's typically, it doesn't fit the true mold of water on demand the way we envision it, the way we're working together to create that. Uh, but it would be a, it would be a complement to it as a subcomponent. Well, I love how Avera mod is coming together. As you know, we are looking at, we are currently separating out as its own business unit, give it dedicated staff, really pile on. And I, I think it's going to really return a lot. Of, uh, return on investments could be amazing. Uh, and I love the work you're doing. So, Dan, please don't let me stop you. <laughs> well, I got to get back to work. I appreciate it. I'm glad to do it. It's a lot of fun, Riggs. I really do appreciate the opportunity and I, I like what I do. Fantastic, Dan. Thank you so much and uh, enjoy your September, okay? Will do. Good talking to you. That was cool. By the way, I've been correct <laughs> a bunch of people like that was Eric Adams. Mayor of New York City, which makes the point even worse because when I was living in New York City in the 80s, New York water was incredible. It was truly incredible. The fact that he's got to go out there and say it's good, it blows my mind because we knew that we had the best water through this vast Delaware water system that came down from upstate New York, um, built by the Italian Masons back at the turn of the century, the 19th century. And uh, it, it's just an amazing system. And it, it does get um, messed up because we're have to pull from the Hudson River. But uh, I thought it was ironic that Eric Adams had to do damage control on that. I'm going to respond to some of the questions. So Emmanuel Kearney wants to know who is on the ground monitoring these systems. Is it origin servicing, origin clear? We always say origin clear. We never say origin because uh, that's the, you know, that's the, the rocket company, um, servicing and maintaining the various commercial systems in a given municipality, the municipality or these, system, or these businesses themselves. Right. These systems are completely maintained under water on demand. It is financed, so you don't have to pay any money up front. You just pay as you go. And it is maintained fully. So the city does not have to. This is really, really on point question because it actually unburdens the city from all that load because the the business under under contract um, gets all these um, operation operation maintenance O and M taken care of and as part of it. Now, why would the city do that? It's because they get benefits. Number one, they get a guaranteed price, which water rates have been skyrocketing. This puts it into control. Number two, they can reuse the water, which gets more bang for their buck, right? And number three, they are not subject to as much of the comes and goes of the city, they are basically off the grid, which is kind of cool. But for the city, and by the way, the cities love this program. They're totally, you know, I've not heard anybody disagree with this. They're totally on board with it because it, again, takes a load away. They are very happy and they're going to be able to service the 11%. Okay, let's see. All right, so that's that. The other thing, what are we doing today for Jackson, Mississippi? Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to review what we're doing for Jackson, Mississippi. We can't help the city of Jackson, Mississippi. It needs $2 billion. What we are doing 
is we're going to businesses and saying, hey, we'll pull you away from these cities. Now, the other point I want to make, I've tried now for 14 years to help people in trouble. You come along, I'll help you. They're like, no, no, no. It's impossible to start relationships in the middle of an emergency. It doesn't happen. Like you have, you have to work way in advance. So unfortunately, we don't have the band-aid. But this is the solution. I'm going to pierce through. I'm going to get my good friend who's in the state assembly and I'm going to work him over because this is, this is not going to go away. It's not going to remain a city problem. Jackson is also the capital of the state. So this, this representative is in Jackson. Um, that's where I met him. And you can't just ignore it, right? This is a big deal. So um, I am going to continue lobbying. But as far as we go, our job is to open up water treatment to America's investors. We call it water like an oil well. You get a productive asset and the businesses get taken off the grid. That's the solution. And I also wanted to correct another thing. Since it's my day for correcting things, I mentioned about English water firms. And okay, England is, is replacing 0.05% of England's coming by network. And whereas uh, the European country is doing about half a percent a year, which is still not enough because even the heavy plastic pipes that we know about um, are 50 to 100 years. And that's not enough, obviously. 200 is more than that. Okay. And uh, Ken points out, absolutely, agriculture is an ideal target for a water demand solution. Okay. I'm going to ask the amazing Ken to join me as we've come up on the end of the hour and I've covered a lot, but I think it was interesting. Uh, I liked the guy at the beginning. He really was. Awesome. And, and thank you for saving me for having continued to type. I commented, I love his questions. He had a very um, kind of capital markets uh, perspective on, on how this operates. And, and his uh, questions were kind of ahead of the game. They really were. I was very impressed by that. And it's funny. He said when he mentioned energy, you and I just had a conversation earlier today where water like an oil well when he said is you know this is kind of like energy i it kind of went off it, it, it kind of got off on a distraction there but the way i describe this to people who really don't fully you know they again they flush the toilet and everything works right they don't fully comprehend how this is a how this is a a um a pay stream model that can provide you know a half a century of income is this is like tapping a well in this case, instead of oil, water, and the fee to, to, to turn that toxic waste back into clean, you know, at least downstream water that could be discharged um, is a service that can run for, for decades and decades and decades. So water like an oil well, it really is the best way of describing it. Um, and, and I was just, you know, when, when he said it, I almost said it out loud, water like an oil well. So I, I love that interview. Um, I hope you do him again. I think what's happening with us over the next six months will really change that, that interview in my, in my view. Yes. And Emmanuel Carney, this is the last question I'm going to, I'm going to take. And, uh, he asks what criteria eliminates a business versus criteria that qualifies a business for water demand? Actually, everybody, because they don't have to be too great on credit because we keep ownership of the asset. It's a rent to center model. So you, as long as you're willing to do it and you're basically in business, uh, you know, not a thief or whatever. I mean, it's, it's a very basic requirement, but you don't, you're not, you're not um, hammering your credit. You're not having to do a personal guarantee and like that. So um, what qualifies a business to want on demand is willingness. 
Because here's what we got right now is we're at the early adopter phase of this. Who is it? Who is in Jackson? I think uh, Nissan is in Jackson. Um, why can't I go to Nissan and do it? Because Nissan's not an early adopter. They're like, well, we're fine. So we have to go at this phase of the rollout of water demand with the enthusiasts, the people who are like, wow, this is super cool. Uh, and I will have a report on this. We're, we're working very closely with Ivan Enns, the brilliant founder of Philanthropy Investors, who took equity and help to the Inc. 500. And he now is working on making that happen for communities. Equity and help was built to get people into homes that, that the other West could never afford. Now he's doing it for whole housing developments and water demand will be integrated. He is a true enthusiast and he's gonna help propel it. I'll be covering that more. James Wright, greetings everyone. Hope everyone's doing well, we're doing great. I'm gonna wrap it up because I really promised to keep these just under an hour. And that's what I'm going to do. Thank you, everyone. So next week, we will be covering how to really get this water demand cranking. Uh, there's going to be some product information. Uh, but I really liked hearing Dan early with his pump stations that it's a prosaic product, but we are killing it with pump stations. And there's millions of pump stations in America. So with that fine capitalist thought, I'm going to leave you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ken. And thank you, everyone. Good it's a pleasure. Uh, catch you next week. It's going to be more, more exciting stuff. Good night. Night, everyone.